Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Right now, partly cloudy skies. Welcome to this Wednesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, DeKalb County School Superintendent Cheryl Watson-Harris has only been on the job a couple of weeks, but she joins me now to share the district's plans for the academic school year and beyond. We very quickly said that we would delay the start of school to August 17th, giving us all additional time for professional development, for the ordering of the devices, et cetera. And then we would begin in full virtual learning. That conversation is just moments away. As for the reason why nearly all school districts have delayed the start of school, we turn to Georgia's COVID-19 numbers. State health officials are reporting Georgia's second highest daily count of the coronavirus-related deaths since the start of the pandemic. 78 deaths were reported in Georgia yesterday. That record is only below the 100 reported at the beginning of April. More than 3,200 Georgians have died since March. Now, currently there are 148,988 cases of the coronavirus and 15,494 have been hospitalized. Of that number, 2,904 are ICU admissions. And as the numbers continue to rise in the nation, as well as here in Georgia, Publix is the latest grocery store that's requiring customers to wear a mask or covering at all locations. This policy went into effect yesterday. Now, company officials previously only encouraged people to wear face masks. That is now changing. They say they want to do everything possible to help prevent the spread of the coronavirus. Publix says it will also limit customers coming into the store if social distancing isn't possible. This is Closer Look. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. The DeKalb County School District recently named the new superintendent to lead the school system. Cheryl Watson-Harris was officially sworn in on July 1st at the district's Stone Mountain headquarters. Now, this wasn't your typical swearing-in ceremony. Well, why? Well, folks who did attend, they wore masks. Now, the event was streamed live. That's just one way this school year will be different due to the coronavirus pandemic. A lot of folks will be wearing masks if the kids come back at some point into the classrooms. And now Superintendent Watson-Harris joins me virtually, of course, to share her plans, to talk about the upcoming school year and a lot more. Superintendent Watson-Harris, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Let's begin with this moment that we're in. Um, you've been in education for a long time, but like so many of us, there is a new normal. We don't know what that new normal is <laughs> or going to be. But what do you make of this extraordinary time that we're all in? Yes, I mean, I think you phrased it correctly that these are unprecedented times um, and we're all kind of building the plane as we're flying it. You're, um, for lack of a better expression, but, um, you know, 
coming from New York City, which was really the epicenter mm -hmm. of this uh, pandemic, um, I have to say how absolutely impressed and inspired I've been by our educators um, nationally. Um, and, and now that I'm here in DeKalb and hearing about how quickly um, and efficiently, effectively um, uh, the staff uh, switched to the remote learning um, and really did their, their very best uh, not having uh, this experience. And so, um, you know, um, I just remain inspired by uh, just the love for our children um, and our communities, um, as well as recognizing how patient and flexible we all have to be while maintaining a sense of urgency uh, for the for the work ahead. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm excited and delighted. I come here with an incredible amount of enthusiasm for uh, making DeKalb County School District the number one choice for our families. Um, and that includes maintaining a sense of excellence and a high standard for all scholars uh, during this time as well. What was it about this school district that made you want to say, you know what, I want to come in as a superintendent and I want to help maybe change some things that need to be changed? you know, maybe continue some great initiatives? Mm -hmm. Yes, I love that question. Thank you so much for that. Um, uh, as I've mentioned uh, previously, I have family in DeKalb, so I'm, I'm not new to this community. I have many um, family members and friends. Uh, my my first cousin, her, her beautiful four boys all went to DeKalb uh, County School District um, and are doing, you know, remarkably well. I have uh, second cousins in the school system right now, and soon we'll have my my own son, um, and I'll be a DeKalb County uh, School District mom. But what really uh, drew me to the school district and to come here as the or apply to become the superintendent was really the di beautiful diversity of the community. Mm -hmm. um, it was very exciting uh, to see so many vibrant communities um, uh, and knowing that my work as a consensus builder, a community builder, knowing that I had the skill set to come in and uh, help to serve more as a glue and bring all these beautiful communities, um, one respecting what's beautiful about them individually, but also to create uh, a more synergy uh, amongst all of the communities to really kind of propel us to the, the future. Uh, the size of the district was also something that I uh, uh, was excited about. You know, I'm coming from uh, Boston Public Schools for, for about 15 years where we had about 60,000 students um, and then New York City with 1.1 million students. Um, so I knew that I wanted to be in a district that was large enough that I wouldn't be driving everybody crazy um, and that it was also one that presented uh, a rich history which uh, has existed here in DeKalb County um, once really touted as the premier uh, district in the in the um, state, um, and and as well as some areas that need to be improved mm -hmm. um, that match my skill set and my background. Um, so uh, that that is the primary reason why I applied. I just you know was drawn to the story of DeKalb County School District and recognized that um, my personal and professional experiences had prepared me to be exactly what uh, I believe DeKalb County was looking for in their next superintendent. You of all people know the plight of America's public school systems. You are aware of issues in a lot of major urban school districts in terms of equity. You are also mm -hmm. aware that there are a lot of 
urban school districts where you have a high percentage of students who are living near or in the poverty zone, as we call it. Uh, DeKalb mm-hmm. County has its pockets, as you mentioned. Uh, what is your approach in, or your ideology in how you approach educating these students? Because so many of them need what you are familiar with, what we call wraparound services. Mm-hmm. I'd, thank you for that question. I mean, that really is my life's work. Uh, I've been uh, referred to as an equity warrior. Um, so it's it's my work professionally, but it, it's also who I am as a person um, that I, I really uh, have always, um, without that knowing that terminology, I've always fought for um, people and communities um, that didn't necessarily have a voice uh, or a seat at the table um, that have been historically underserved or marginalized. So um, I'm always looking at uh, whatever we're doing, whatever decision-making um, that needs to be done, that that's done through an equity lens. And, and equity, as we know, doesn't mean that everyone gets the same thing. Mm-hmm. That means that each community receives what they need mm-hmm. to be able to uh, meet the needs of their students, to level the playing field, um, to ensure that all students have access to excellence and what they need to go on to uh, what I call family sustaining careers. Um, so that is um, that you, you asked about my ideology. That's my DNA. That's mm-hmm. who I am. Um, and, you know, I have had a long track record of, of really uh closing that gap, whether it be um, through student achievement or access to uh, the right and targeted resources for each and every community. And so you're right here in DeKalb, we do have many um, pockets uh, where we have students that um, uh, have some basic needs that are not being met. And, and that's the job of the school system as well to ensure that we're creating a comprehensive plan that includes partnerships uh, where we can ensure that those uh, pieces of, of a child's life that um, are, are not exactly where they need to be are being met. And so um, that's something that we can continue to strengthen here, um, uh, looking at a community schools model, looking at full service communities, looking at, um, you know, hubs uh, that really meet the needs of, of all families, but excited to see some of the things that are already in place. Uh, last week, I had the opportunity to visit the um, registration site mm-hmm. um, and just really impressed with the on-site social workers, um, translators, so that we can, from the inception of welcoming a family into the DeKalb County School District, we can very quickly uh, assess additional supports and services that families may need. Um, and I'm just, you know, continuing to just assess where there might be gaps in that type of approach. Um, but I think that that speaks volumes to the intention of making sure that we're uh, supporting the whole child and the whole family. Well, and now, Superintendent Watson-Harris, you come into a situation where one of those gaps now that you have to focus on if students are not able to return to the classroom is the the notion of the remote learning, making sure Mm -hmm. kids have maybe the laptops or Chromebooks that they need, and then add on to that access to the internet so they can access their schoolwork. Have you looked at what the needs may be for those households that don't have any of that, particularly mm-hmm. if you're going to start the school year remotely? Absolutely. Um, you know, this 
idea of not idea but reality of the digital divide you know is definitely something that um, where we see examples of true inequities um, we've been working very closely with our chief uh, information officer uh, monica davis and her team uh, who really have done a deep dive in terms of student engagement data from the spring to see exactly where we had the gaps. I mean, we, we, we know certain communities where um, we would expect to see a greater need for devices. Mm -hmm. um, but beyond assumptions, you know, I, I like to lead with data, um, really looking at those numbers and then drilling down in terms of the, the root cause. So uh, in the spring, uh, we did make devices available for our six through 12 students. Um, right now, we're in the process of purchasing devices for our elementary school students who had um, who, who did not all receive devices uh, in the spring um, and so our goal is to have a hundred percent of our students with devices um, but as you uh, mentioned it's not just giving the device mm -hmm. right we have to also make sure that they have access to um, the internet so also looking into some creative partnerships to ensure that you know, we remove that additional barrier for students um, and in the process of, of doing that uh, right now. But in addition to that, you know, we're not stopping there. We're also looking at additional supports for families because parents are being asked to take on a new role mm -hmm. uh, in terms of educating and supporting their children at home. So also looking at supports for families, uh, a, a dial a teacher program is something that we're excited to launch, um, thinking about how we can use our public access television station also for uh, tutorials for students and for families um, and then most importantly thinking about the social emotional supports for our students who are experiencing trauma i mean it, our students and our staff and our families this is a traumatic um, experience mm -hmm. uh, and uh, so building again a, a robust and comprehensive plan that addresses the digital divide uh, but also uh, supports our students and their families in terms of their their social emotional health um, to be able to, uh, you know, be successful in this this new normal, this new reality. I also want to make clear for our listeners who may not be aware of, but what is the plan? DeKalb County mm -hmm. Schools will start remotely, correct? Mm -hmm. Absolutely, we will. <laughs> um, and that again is 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 data driven. Um, the the trends right now, if you're following them, we have an uptick in cases, um, and it's really just not worth putting our babies, putting our scholars uh, at risk. Um, and our teachers, uh, you know, we we did administer a community survey, um, which. Quite honestly, you know what uh, most people took that survey before we had this uptick. But even mm -hmm. at that time, it was clear that our teachers were not comfortable coming back to the brick and mortar space uh, just now at the at the start of school. Um, and we know our students; they want to come back to school. They want to see their friends. They want to be connected with their um, the communities that they love. But it, it was um, it was a well thought out decision, but it was not a hard decision to make. Um, and I think. We we were, you know, uh, we, we very quickly said that we would delay the start of school to August 17th, giving us all um, 
additional time for professional development, for the ordering of the devices, et cetera. Uh, and then we would begin in a full virtual learning. Uh, and, and something I really appreciate about our plan is that we also then have made a commitment to families that we will continue to review that data mm -hmm. um, and we will make changes as needed. You know, no one can really predict what's going to happen, um, but it will be data driven and it will be uh, centered on the safety and, uh, excuse me, the safety of our students uh, and our staff. I want to move to sports for a moment because football is big here in the South. You know, Friday night football at high at the high school level, the Georgia High School Association, they have their guidelines. Uh, are you okay with the fact that they're going to push some of the scheduling back, particularly for football and, and when schools can start practicing and all that? Do you have any concerns? Um, yes, I'll start by saying my husband played college football and my sons, both my sons played football. My, my oldest son played high school football. So I am, you know, very used to the field and flipping burgers and selling, <laughs> you know, uh, Gatorade and all the, the 25 cent snacks. Um, and I know how important um, football and, and all of our sports, mm -hmm. my daughter is also a competitive cheerleader, um, how uh, important that is in the life of, of a child. Um, but we do have the guidelines um, and we are, we've been very conservative in our approach in terms of the number of students that we're allowing to participate in the conditioning at this time mm -hmm. uh, while closely monitoring each week uh, any potential cases or the safety of our students. So, um, you know, we're watching that very closely uh, and we're watching it uh, in terms of what we believe will be uh, in the best interest long-term for our um, student athletes. Um, so we haven't made a, a definitive decision on, on that just yet, mm -hmm. uh, but we're watching the cases where uh, we're gonna make a decision that we believe ultimately will keep our students athletes healthy for the long-term, not just right now. So you wanna rely on the science and let that guide you and public health officials and your public health officials in cab. And if that means opposite of what the Georgia High School Association may want to suggest, you're okay with that? We'll make a decision as a community. Um, you know, I, I definitely uh, wouldn't make a decision in isolation. Mm -hmm. um, we know uh, how parents feel about this. We know how our student athletes feel. Um, but ultimately, we do have the discretion to make the decision that is best for DeKalb uh, County. Um, and I will do that uh, with the larger community, definitely hearing from parents who have, you know, a lot of those uh, emails in my inbox are from the parents of our student athletes. Um, so again, it'll be a tough decision, but it's one that we'll make as a community. And again, it'll be driven by uh, what's best uh, for the safety and health of our students. Well let me in, uh, let our listeners in. What have you been reading? What, what's in those emails from the parents or concerns, whether it's about sports or anything else? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, I've, I've received a nice warm welcome from our families, which is great. Uh, I think people appreciate uh, my visibility so far. Uh, that was really important to me to make sure that I uh, maintain a certain level of transparency. Uh, but I'm here. I'm here to be the superintendent of DeKalb. I, I want to 
be a part of the community. Um, but naturally, uh, the, the first set of emails, I think today's day 15 for me, 15 or 16, I have to check. Uh, but the first uh, set of emails really were about opening of school. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you know, you I did receive some emails about people uh, wanting to go back into the brick and mortar space, but overwhelmingly, they were emails from parents who uh, were advocating for us starting um, in a virtual space. Um, and then, you know, we have lots of emails of, from parents uh, wanting the children to move forward with the sports season um, and others that that don't. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that that's kind of where we are. Lots of questions from parents on both sides of the coin, really. Mm-hmm. But uh, I appreciate and I that's my response. I've been trying to respond to as many e- emails as possible. But um, to just say thank you so much for your feedback. It, it's mm-hmm. great for me to know uh, exactly what's top of mind for our families and our community members. So um, I hope once we get out of this virtual space, we can create additional opportunities for town halls um, and other community engagement efforts so that I can, you know, see people face to face. But for now, um, I have appreciated the, the feedback from the community. If you're just joining Closer Look, I'm joined by newly named Cab School Superintendent Cheryl Watson-Harris. Let's move to the other folks involved here who are on the front line is that's your educators and your support staff. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you had opportunity to talk to the teachers, mm-hmm. the, the ones who are at the board, well, at the virtual <laughs> chalkboards now? Have you had a chance to talk to them and, and just listen to their concerns? Mm-hmm. Um, I did have a chance to engage with the teacher advisory committee um, before coming down here mm-hmm. as part of our days uh, had a chance to um, engage with them. Um, We're also scheduling, you know, I have a a 30, 60, 90 day entry plan um, that includes uh, engagement with various stakeholders. Um, So we have an invitation out for uh, a reconvening of the teacher advisory committee. Um, But then as part of these Wednesday field days, uh, I might have mentioned that every Wednesday, um, I've started to uh, explore DeKalb and learn more um, from constituencies, you know, from the regional superintendent to the students and back up. Um, And and that's also an opportunity to speak to teachers in a specific region. So last week I spent uh, Wednesday with uh, Dr. Tart in region three mm-hmm. uh, and had an opportunity to hear from teachers, principals, students, um, uh, at, you know, as well as the regional superintendent in a more intimate setting. Um, so my intention is to engage uh, all stakeholders. I think I also mentioned the week before I spent the morning with our bus drivers and food service workers that, uh, you know, are real heroes and sheroes uh, getting out the food distribution. Mm-hmm. Um, so also hearing from them, you know, and letting them know that I, 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 I want to hear how um, our policies and initiatives are working to support uh, all constituents uh, throughout our school system. Um, so that will be part of the practice. I want to get your thoughts also, Superintendent uh, Watson-Harris, on the role of charter schools mm-hmm. in a public school system. Uh, down, depending on whom you ask, you get a different answer. <laughs> Some say they are a great component, an asset. Others may have a different opinion. 
What's your mm-hmm. viewpoint on charter schools? Yeah. So I believe that um, parents should have choice and they should make the choice that they feel is the very best uh, for uh, their child. Um, I believe that there are many charter schools that have uh, very innovative practices uh, that, you know, traditional schools can partner and learn from. I also believe that charters can learn a lot from traditional schools, um, especially in the space of meeting the needs of diverse learners. Um, So I think there is a place for collaboration, Um, but my job as the uh, superintendent of DeKalb County School District is to make our district and our schools the number one choice uh, for families. So I like to focus my efforts and um, uh, commitment and and work to ensuring that our schools are excellent and innovative and are the the first choice for families. But you have a few charter schools within the the system. Will you talk to those leaders and just oh, absolutely. To, yeah. Yes, absolutely, because they have uh, children that are, uh, you know, part of DeKalb County. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the end of the day, uh, you know, we have to make sure that all of the children in DeKalb County are receiving um, the highest quality education. So that, 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 you know, that is our work to be one community. And then also students who might require special needs and, and the individualized education plans that many of them have. And there are also a lot of folks who call for some type of reform in that area, too, since you are educating all students. And I know you've only been superintendent for <laughs> a few weeks, so it's unfair to say, how are you going to change all this? But when you look at the special needs program uh, within mm-hmm. the county, I don't know if you had a chance, uh, do, or do you plan to say, well, you know what, here's some things that worked in other areas that, where I've been, and maybe you want to implement those here? And if so, what are they? Mm-hmm. Yes. So thank you for acknowledging, you know, that I'm I'm just settling in. Um, and Fix and everything, superintendent. You got... <laughs> <laughs> and it won't be me by myself. I mean, I, you know, I have an incredible team. I can already see that, that, you know, we have some outstanding educators here in DeKalb. Um, but my, you know, my approach is always ensuring that every child um, has uh, access to an excellent first dose of instruction. And so what that means to me is that Uh, the educators, our phenomenal educators, are not planning, uh, you know, the the first dose of instruction and then supplemental uh, exercises for our students with disabilities or English language learners. We have to think about the approach uh, in a differentiated way Mm -hmm. so that all students have access to that first dose of instruction. And then we supplement with um, interventions or whatever else a child might need scaffolding to be able to um, meet the the rigor of the standards. But um, I'm not thinking, I'm not putting children in different boxes. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have to make sure that our approach, you know, is um, a strategic enough that all students you know, are, are receiving a high quality uh, education. With that, we do have uh, students with varied uh, learning styles uh, throughout the district. Um, 
We have some phenomenal programs for students with severe disabilities. Um, and, uh, you know, also the the Welcome Center and our the, the way that we're supporting our English language learners um, uh, also are some real jewels within DeKalb County. I think the goal right now is to make sure that we pull pull it all together mm-hmm. um, so that uh, we're ensuring uh, that all students' needs are being met. But that that will be the approach. Is there a greater challenge or greater barriers because of the pandemic now to meet the needs of those students? Because so much when they're in school, so much is with hands-on or with the teacher, the educator, having this one-on-one contact, this interface. That's mm-hmm. going to be different. It has to yeah. be different now. So how do you? Mm-hmm. I think you will be a great teacher. I love the way that you're thinking about <laughs> about our scholars. Absolutely, I love that question. Yeah, it's it's it is it is a challenge. Um, we back to those emails I'm receiving. Definitely receiving lots of emails from our parents um, of students who uh, have a, an individual education plan. Um, so we're you know again, I think lots of lessons learned from the spring. Um, we have a team that's really thinking about uh, how we're meeting the needs of varied learners, um, how we can add in additional supports and personnel. I know there's been lots of questions about the role of paraprofessionals and supplemental staff, but really looking at where are their gaps and how do we use our limited resources and personnel to ensure that we're meeting the needs of, of all of those scholars. So um, that is part of the plan. Uh, every day when we when we meet and we talk about the modules, the professional development for our teachers, um, as well as the uh, instructional supplies and resources, they're always through that lens of, um, you know, what about our students with disabilities? What about our our English language learners? And how can we ensure this is as robust as possible? And finally, I want to talk about you again, as not only the leader, but also you say it's a team, and as you know. Many school districts also grapple with external requests. You know, you have the board, you have community leaders, you have business leaders, you have parents, you have the students, and they all want something and they all come to you. So how do you mm-hmm. balance all that with the keeping in mind the goal with everything you just told me when we started this conversation, the goal, why you wanted to take this job. So how do you balance all of that and not get caught up in, in the politics of being a superintendent? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I love that question too. I love all your questions. Um, you know, the reason at the end of the day, I think the reason that the board uh, selected me as a superintendent um, was because they recognize my sincere commitment to children. Um, and that is always my lens. What is best for our scholars? Um, I'm a mom of three. Uh, and, you know, uh, I take that very seriously. Um, and the decisions that I make as an educator are the decisions that I would want someone to make for my three children. Um, and in my dealings or not dealings, my work, my the honor and privilege of, of working with the incredible team of educators here, as well as the board, I believe at the end of the day, Um, We all want the same thing. We want our children to be healthy and happy and successful. Um, And as long as I keep that as my internal compass, as I say, 
uh, you know, I can figure out the rest mm -hmm. uh, in terms of making sure that we're all on the same page. And, um, you know, I, I think people respect that, you know, even people in the past who maybe, you know, you, you, you don't please everyone. That's not the reality of it. And, you know, not everybody's going to love you. But I don't think that there's anyone I've ever worked with in my 26 years that would deny that um, I love I love children. Um, and, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm pleased and happy to be able to fight for them and, you know, be in tough situations uh, and, and really be a voice and a champion for them. So how do you handle a crisis? What's been your, your method? Okay. Well, calm and steady wins the race, definitely. <laughs> uh, you know, we, uh, in my cabinet, uh, something I love to do as we build uh, professional learning communities is we, you know, we, we start always with a text-based discussion. And, um, you know, I try to facilitate that so that everyone is, is part of the conversation. Uh, but that's what we've been reading about, leading through crisis and change. Um, and we, we had an excellent reading last week that one of our regional superintendents offered. Um, and one of the uh, tenets of that was, you know, finding an anchor, um, mm -hmm. you know, making sure that during crisis that you have um, an anchor. And for me, that anchor really is my internal compass of ensuring that we're, you know, putting the needs of our students our, in the safety of our students um, first, but also, you know, this idea of teamwork makes the dream work. Uh, and every every position I've held, I've always told them, you know, this is not the Cheryl show. You know, I'm I'm one member of this team, um, and I have to respect and give you know, audience and and position to everyone else to mm -hmm. make sure that whatever decision we're making is always the, the best one. Sometimes that'll be my idea. Sometimes I have to be humble and enough to know that that might be somebody else's idea that I need to get behind and support. Um, but finding that anchor and team uh, and our belief and advocacy for our students and their families really is um, how I will lead through uh, any crisis. August 17th, DeKalb County Schools will open remotely. Superintendent Cheryl Watson-Harris, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Next time we'll get you in the studio. We don't know yeah, what that's going to be, but. <laughs> yes. And after we, uh, we, we're going to expand our sister's keeper. So we have to make sure that we get you out to speak to the girls. I would love to do that. Not a problem. And by the way, I've never been a teacher, but I've been a camp counselor. And I was a pretty good camp counselor. I could tell. <laughs> I'd hide you. <laughs> Superintendent, thank you so much. Best of luck to you. And welcome to DeKalb County. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful day. You too. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. Support for WABE comes from Capital Good Fund, introducing Georgia Bright Solar Lease Program, a new rooftop solar initiative designed to create pathways to equitable and inclusive solar, sustainability, and monthly savings for Georgians. Learn more at georgiabright.org. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. You know, on this program, we've talked with several small business owners as, as they work to navigate through the process of reopening during the pandemic. And even back in April, 
late April, I spoke with the owners of Poor Hendrix. It's a restaurant in East Atlanta. Jamie and her husband, Aaron Russell, at that time said they were temporarily closed, at least the dining room was, and that the eatery and the bar would offer, you know, what they could at the time. Now, since Governor Kemp's eased restrictions allowing restaurants to reopen under special guidelines, Poor Hendrick's dining room remained closed, only offering what they call contactless takeout options to protect the health of their customers and staff. Take a listen. A lot of those guidelines are uh, a little impractical for a restaurant of our size. We're very small, mm -hmm. um, maintaining social distance at a bar is a difficult thing. And also there's still some concerns from, you know, our local uh, public health officials that, uh, you know, have given us some pause when it comes to reopening quite this early in the middle of the, what we still think may be in the middle of the crisis. Now, that was back in April. And also during the conversation, Jamie told me that they were making ends meet through the support of their customers. Well, we feel very lucky that at this point we are covering our bills with the money that we are bringing in. Um, it's twice as much work for half the money uh, because obviously doing takeout only, you're missing all those dine-in customers. And we uh, have a very hop and bar usually and a lot of alcohol sales. Um, but we are, thanks to our amazing amazing regulars and customers they are keeping us afloat so we can go on as long as we have to obviously that's you know we want to get back to normal when we can but we want to do it in a safe way to keep our staff and community healthy Back to normal. As of this broadcast, according to the restaurant's website, Poor Hendricks, the dining room is still closed, but they're still offering takeout options. Well, as more and more Georgia restaurant owners are working to grapple with this new normal that the pandemic has created, the Georgia Restaurant Association is trying to do all that they can to help their members. And joining me now to talk about all this is Karen Bremer, the CEO of the Georgia Restaurant Association. Karen, good to see you again via Zoom. Welcome back to the program. Yeah, Thanks for having me. You have decades of experience in the hospitality industry and the restaurant industry. Other than maybe when the nation was experiencing a recession, can you recall any other time when the industry has been coping with something like this? No. Um, with 46 years in the industry, I've been through five recessions. I've been through 9-11. I've been through tornadoes, hurricanes, um, flu seasons. <laughs> Nothing ever like this. This is, uh, I don't know how anybody could have been prepared for this. I think that as it continues to linger on, um, restaurants as well as many small businesses are just having to learn new solutions for new problems and to get creative and to be adaptive and to be resourceful because this is a financial recession, but it's also an illness. I mean, there, there's a disease out there but I, I always call it the hidden enemy. Mm -hmm. And um, and we don't know that much about it. And so every day presents some new nuance to, to what's going on. It's not something we can see, feel, or taste. So there are all these extra precautions that everybody has to do to ensure that the safety and the wellness of their, of their team and, and their customers. And Karen, have you had conversations with maybe the smaller independent restaurant owners who have said, you know what, we're just going to have to close for good. This is the end of this business for me. Have you had that conversation? Yes. Yes. I've had, um, I've had some very painful conversations with um, a number of people 
that uh, you know they were they were my peers when I was a restaurateur, and and I consider them still my colleagues as the CEO of the Restaurant Association, and and um, you know I've had I've heard the desperation in people's voices, mm -hmm. I've heard the panic in people's voices, um, you know I've I've heard the resignation in people's voices of of, of what they're having to do. I mean, a, a small business restaurants in particular require a lot of passion because of the, how hard the work is. And I've talked to people that have um, sold their homes so that they could raise cash to keep their businesses open. Um, and have gone through all sorts of things to try to keep their business running. And just ha it, there's a certain point where, where you say, you know, your accountant's telling you or your attorney's telling you or your wife or your husband is saying, we can't go on any, any longer like this. And mm -hmm. um, and I, I, uh, I feel so much for, for all of these uh, small businesses and we try to help them as much as we possibly can. And every day we try to find more things we can do and more things we can suggest to the government to help our businesses. Have you lost membership? Has your membership decreased at all? Have folks left said, look, there's no reason for me to even be part of the association anymore. Have you? Well, that would be hard for us to gauge right now because we we opened up all of our resources to mm -hmm. all restaurants, even to other industries. Um, and we have not invoiced any of our um, any of our restaurants since the beginning of March. And right right now we are here for the good of the restaurant industry. Prior to March 17th, 19,000 restaurants, 500,000 workers. We were on course to do 25 billion in revenue this year. And within a two week period, we had laid off 78% um, of the workers, roughly 300,000. Initially, we had 20% closed temporarily and probably, yeah, 20% closed temporarily, the other 80% trying to switch into some sort of delivery, carry out or curbside. We estimate the financial impact uh, of the loss of roughly 200 million a month in revenue. Um, wow. certain, yeah, so cer certainly there are different segments that have been affected in a different manner. If you have a drive-through and you're pretty good, you're, you're probably okay. And, mm -hmm. and we've also seen epic uh, sales in the pizza industry. Uh, yeah. you know, everybody, can, everybody can get a box of pizza and, you yeah. know, contactless and, and everything else. The true pain has been in the full service restaurant that many of them had never done delivery or carry out or drive through prior mm -hmm. to this. Our educators with the National Restaurant Association Educational Foundation, that's the research side of the, of the National Restaurant Trade Association that does all the scientific research, works with the CDC, the FDA, and already had them working on guidelines for our restaurants. Should we, should we be closed for carryout and delivery? They created a very simple training program, a, a couple of eight minute videos. We started circulating those out to our network for free. Uh, for people to take to learn proper procedures for for how you're going to package food, prepare food, what, what are the sanitation considerations and safety considerations. Mm -hmm. And then they had started working with us already on what would it be like after we get through that and we would start to open. Because, because I, I knew 
instinctively, it wouldn't be like all of a sudden you're just open. Mm-hmm. Um, that there would be a gra- there would have to be a gradual um, opening, just because people were going to have we were going to have to come up with new systems and procedures. There was going to be a whole new way of uh, and the restaurant business has always been the wash your hands all the time and sanitize everything. I mean, our restaurants are inspected to an FDA standard, to mm-hmm. the highest standard that there is in our country um, on a regular basis by our local health department. But but I knew with, again, the hidden enemy, there were going to be things we didn't know. Mm-hmm. And The thing you don't know is who's coming into the restaurant. Correct. A restaurant can be sanitized and be clean and the, the employees, everybody adhering by those guidelines. But as you know, it could just take one person coming into the restaurant as well. If you're just tuning in, I'm joined by Karen Bremer. She's the CEO of the Georgia Restaurant Association. And we're talking about Georgia's restaurants reopening during the pandemic, the good and the challenging. So now, Karen, my question is, are are you all hearing from members of the Restaurant Association that now with Georgia's numbers continuing to increase, are there some concerns? And do you think some of the guidelines should be I guess rolled back a little bit because the numbers are increasing I I will tell you it's probably split 50-50 I think it's important to remember that Georgia we have the second most counties in the United States Mm -hmm. we're the eighth largest state you know got 159 counties 135 cities and the rest of the state is not the metro area sure Uh, I mean, I live south of the airport, uh, southwest of the airport in the county that I live in. We've only had two fatalities. We've only had a couple hundred cases, if that. But there is some dense there at Peachtree City, Fayetteville. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's, there's density there. That's certainly not the same density as the city of Atlanta and, and the inner metro area. My responsibility to the industry was to come up with, to work with the Department of Public Health, the CDC, the governor's office. Let's come up with guidelines. Let's get the businesses back open. Let's inform people of, of the best practices and what we know. From that point, I think that people have to make their own decision as to what works for their, for their workers, what works for their customers, what works for their municipality or their neighborhood. Our job was to help get it to that launch point. Mm-hmm. And then from that launch point, that is a business owner's decision and responsibility. And certainly there are those that say, I don't want anybody coming into my restaurant that doesn't have a face covering on. Mm-hmm. And many, many restaurants are doing that. I mean, we've seen that. We all know that there is an element or we think there is an element of safety wearing face mm-hmm. covering. So anyhow, I, I think that in maybe in certain parts of our state, there is not as high a degree of danger mm-hmm. I, I, I guess danger is the right word or or transmission a high and risk yeah mm-hmm. high risk high risk yeah and then certainly in, in in other parts of our state it's um if if social distancing isn't followed and face coverings aren't being worn there evidently are issues uh, related with that mm-hmm. some some restaurants may never reopen for dying in period Mm-hmm. Um, because their, their facilities are just too small. They can't do the appropriate social distancing. I mean, you can't open up a restaurant and only have 10 people in it mm-hmm. um, and bring staff in and everything else because it's an expensive proposition to open a restaurant with all of these safety standards in place with diminished 
customer base. And you know, so Karen, you, you you raise up a good point, and, and my apologies for interrupting because I want our listeners to understand. Depending on where you are in the state, and I'm looking at a map right now. For example, Jasper County, they have just over 100, 102 confirmed cases, one death. But you come up north to someplace like Gwinnett County, which has over 13,000 confirmed cases and 200 deaths. So, do you all have a stance in terms of what you all would like to see restaurants consider? If you are in a, an area or a county where you have, like Gwinnett County, where you have more than 10,000 confirmed cases as opposed to a smaller county like Jasper, would you like to see some more, if not mandates, but are you encouraging your restaurants to really look at the situation and, and where they're located and maybe require folks wear masks and only do takeout or delivery? Or if you're going to do social distancing, do social distancing, because apparently what I've learned through this is some people don't understand what six feet really is, you know? Well, uh, a couple a couple things with that. We we do almost weekly webinars for restaurants, and um, and it, it's interesting because even people from the Department of Public Health come on our webinars to listen in to hear what what how people are thinking and feeling. But we we do a lot of webinars where we where we assemble panels of restaurateurs that are already open to talk about what's working for them, what's not working for them usually have some some somebody that's an expert, somebody that is a scientist um, in the public health arena to talk about different options and different ways of doing things and how people have innovated and how they've become creative with their reopening plans and guidelines. And also what people want, because I think people can make themselves macronutrients and make love at home, but I think they're going to want more unique experiences and more unique when they venture out of their home, they feel comfortable enough to go to a restaurant. And with that comfort level, and I, this will be, I'll give you the final word on this, with that comfort level maybe comes with the notion that the numbers are decreasing in terms of confirmed cases or, or even deaths or hospitalizations, but right now they're not decreasing. So, Karen, at what point do you could it get to a point where you all – are in agreement that maybe there needs to be just a another not total shutdown, but going back to maybe the, the early beginnings where it was just no dine in at all, only takeout. I know that's a tough question for you for your industry because you are champions for the restaurant so for the restaurants, the big and the small, the moms and the pops. Um, you know we we support. Um, our public health officials and Governor Kemp from being a small business person, you know, he, he understands the pain that a lot of people are going through. I think um, along with the with the folks that they that are guiding them and the guidance from our from the CDC, the FDA, um, and other organ other organizations that guide us, I think they will make the right decisions and give us the direction as to where we need to go. And um, I. I I wonder, though, with with the increased testing um, and the increased cases, mm-hmm. are is every case where is every case resulting in a death? Is every case resulting in somebody being in a hospital on a ventilator? The challenge is that with one confirmation means that they could possibly give the virus to 
dozens of other folks. That is the complexity of all of this. You know, and, uh, and but, but I think going forward, um, our the restaurant industry as well as other industries, we have to rely on on the guidance from from our state leadership, from the, the with Dr. Kimmy, Department of Public Health, with mm-hmm. with her expertise, Governor Kemp, with his small business experience, the experts that they have surrounded themselves with are 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 going to be the ones to give us guidance, whatever guidance they give us. I will communicate to the industry and make sure that um, that there's an open dialogue there with telling people what their options are and, and how to achieve uh, the results that we're looking for. Mm-hmm. Um, all I know is is that I want, the, the, our restaurants want their, uh, are concerned with the health and the safety of their workers. They're obviously concerned with the health and the safety of their customers because certainly they want their customers to come back. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I would just say that if you love your restaurant, support them any way that you can. Um, be respectful when you go out to dine. Remember that the people taking care of you um, have families, have mothers, have fathers, have children. And, and certainly they have a living that they are trying to provide to keep a roof over their head. But, but remember and be sensitive to the fact, be polite to them and be respectful of their personal uh, safety. But let's all work together in solving this issue and, and work together in, in helping these small businesses stay, uh, stay in business. And working together, that seems to be key. Karen Brimmer, the CEO of the Georgia Restaurant Association. As always, Karen, I thank you for taking the time and, and sharing you know, the inside of your association. You're welcome, Rose. Thank you so much for um, helping to get the messages out. And um, every day, your voice is, is a voice of comfort and reason to me. So thank you very much for the opportunity to speak with you and, and with your listeners today. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelly Kanavy. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. And listen whenever you want, because Closer Look is now available as a podcast. Just visit NPR One or your favorite streaming app and subscribe. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. world has changed from shifts in power to a mental health crisis. So with all this social change, how do we balance the human desire for empathy, the business need for productivity, and the hope to make an impact in our community? This is a new podcast, The Social Impact Leader. I'm Jeff Schinnebarker. Join me as we explore people doing work a little different. Available every Wednesday at wabe.org forward slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. W-A-B-E. Hey y'all, I'm Mark Kendall. And I'm David Perdue. And we're the hosts of What's Good Atlanta, the new weekly comedy podcast from WABE. On What's Good Atlanta, we run down uplifting and unusual headlines from the universe known as Atlanta. And while we may not be journalists, we are comedians and we'll be breaking down news and breaking down the stories that make you smile. We're just trying to see what's good, Atlanta. Episodes drop Fridays at WABE.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I get mine from a guy named Craig. Shout out to Craig. Mm -hmm. (laughs) W-A-B-E.